0: We're going to begin with Romans chapter 12. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you want, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Flip to the left in your Bibles to Acts chapter two. Just over a few pages to the left to Acts chapter two. This is one of the first gatherings that we see in the New Testament of the Ecclesia, or of the church. And it says this in Acts 2.42, a passage that's probably familiar to most. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. I want to ask you this question this morning. What is the goal of church? What is the goal of a church? What's the point of church? You know, it's easy to question it amongst the hangover from the religious right in the 80s and 90s, focus on the family, from the relevance movement in churches in the early 2000s, to celebrity pastors, to worship album sales and sex scandals, to deconstruction and whether you're affirming or non affirming. It's all so tiresome. And it leaves one asking what's the point of it all? What's the point of church? Have you thought much about church? What I want to do this morning is I want to look at what is the social contract of Saints Hill. Maybe write that that, that phrase down. What is the social contract of Saints Hill? Meaning, when you come into this space and you're trying to figure out, is this my church or should another church be my church or am I, you know, Anglican or Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Protestant, what am I? When you come into this church, we want to make it very clear what you can expect to give to church and what you can expect to get from church. What is the social contract? What can you expect to give to church and what can you expect to get from church? See, churches gather um, for many different reasons. Here's just a list of a few. We have the Doctrine Church. Some of you guys know this. There's a church that's centered around specific theological interpretation. Doctrine Church. You have the Happy Clappy Church. Like, we come together and we're happy because we're Christians. And if you're going through a tough thing, just ignore it. We're supposed to be happy. You have the Justice Church that's completely centered around the oppressed and oppressors, and how do we upend that system? You have the sacraments church. We come together. The, you're not coming for a sermon. You're not coming for worship. You're coming just for communion, baptism, that sort of thing. You have the thoughtful church, the contemplative church, the, the, the you know, give me something interesting to chew on. You have the entertainment church. And then you have, lastly, keeping the building maintained church, <laughs> uh, which is really sad. There's a lot of beautiful old churches that the whole congregation exists to just. Keep the building going. And the reason for such diversity in church is that most of church in the West is a combination of personality preference mixed with a shining image of church. Most of church in the West is a combination of your personality preference that you bring to church mixed with a shining image of what church could be. What I mean is that people pick church communities to belong to out of their personality preferences and out of their own personal vision of what the perfect church should be in their minds. From the contemplative to the mystic to the shout unto God and raise a banner, all of us have a shining image of what church could be if that church just did a few things differently. And here's why this matters. If the social contract of a church isn't defined, if you don't know what is expected of you within a body of believers, and you don't know what you can expect from that body of believers, then your shining image in your mind of what church should be becomes your imaginary social contract, and disappointment is right around the corner. And I'd say that's where about 40% of my pastoral meetings come from, is that issue right there. (laughs) So what is your shining image of church? Take a moment and really think about it. What does the perfect church look like in your mind? What do you want this to be? If we could all just do this, if we just made this the focus, if, if, if we could just get that theological tweak in there, what's your shining image of church? And where did you get that idea? For my last message in our 2022 vision series, I want to talk about why church, how we should do church, and the social contract required for this church. So, why church? Why even have a church? How should we do church? And what is the social contract required for this church? So, first, why church? I would argue that the modern 501c3 church or the state run church or the Roman Catholic church would all have been very, very foreign to the New Testament authors. We all have departed from the original intent, in my opinion. Look back down at your Bible. Is it Acts 2, verse 42? Just like what can we surmise from the earliest gathering of the church? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, they're doing communion together. Everybody's filled with awe at the many wonders and signs. The Holy Spirit is active and moving through the community. Unexplainable things are happening in the physical world. It's incredible. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. So there's this sense of like, what do you lack? Can you fill that need? And, and what do you lack? And can maybe I can fill that need. Um, every day they continued to meet. Every day. Every day. Every day. <laughs> they continued to meet. Together in the temple courts, there's still, still this, at this point in the church, they're still maintaining some level of a Jewish identity, they're still in the temple. Uh, they broke bread in homes, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, they're singing, they're enjoying favor of people, and people are getting saved, their, their number's being added to. Jesus founded the ecclesia, the gathering of all believers, and he even gives the church authority. So what is it supposed to be about? What is the church supposed to be about? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to go back to what it means to be human and the problem that Jesus is solving through the church. What does it mean to be human and what problem is Jesus trying to solve? So here's just a quick rundown of the meta story of the Bible, if you will. God creates humans for partnership, not out of lack, but out of an overflow of love, Okay, so God doesn't need humans. He wants humans. He's looking for partnership. The entire arc of the story is that God is willing to risk by making humans just that he might have partners for his Eden project. God gives such dignity and freedom to their choices that they have the ability to spread Eden or hell. Just with your choice, what do you see in Genesis chapter three? They have an opportunity. They can agree with God and spread Eden, or they can agree with the serpent and spread hell. And we know what has happened. We know the choice that was made and has been made millions of times over. God is looking to restore Eden relationship with every person. So Jesus comes to get the authority we once had back and he recreates us to be his priests on earth through his indwelling spirit. Peter, which is kind of, this is funny to me because... He's supposed to be the Pope. Peter then proclaims that you are a priesthood. Look what he says right here. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Not you, clergy. Not you with a theology degree. Not you who's become a monk. No. You all... Like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So here's my summary of why the church in 2022. Here's my summary. The point of church is to help embodied souls live in love instead of fear through oneness with Yahweh for the sake of heaven on earth. Maybe, like, get your phone out, take a picture of it or something like that. Really contemplate this. The point of church is to help embodied souls live in love instead of fear. How? Through oneness with Yahweh for the sake of heaven on earth. I want to walk through this uh, statement uh, line by line, if you will. Uh, embodied. What do we mean by embodied? We're in, you know, the, the church exists uh, uh, to, to help embodied souls. What does that mean? What that means is that we are not, we're not souls that have a body. Our bodies and our souls are one. So we're not like a uh, glass of water. We're like the glass and God pours some soul in. No, we are a soul. You are a soul. Creation teaches us that bodies and material are good. The incarnation teaches us that the divine and physical are not two separate entities or worlds, but that all of God's creation points to and participates in his divine life. Paul says in Colossians that all things, all the created things that you see in this world are held together through Christ. In a sense, God is in everything. It's his creation. So body work, stuff that you do with your body is soul work. It's stuff that you're doing with your soul. What you do with your body does something to your soul. So if you watch TV all day or you scroll on your phone constantly or you're sleeping with people who you're not married to, all of those things in their own unique ways will shape your soul because you did it with your body. So your becoming like Jesus has to do with your thinking, right? Renewed minds. Paul was talking about that in in Romans chapter 12. It has to do with your mind. But it has to do with more than just your mind. It has to do with your body. Remember, love the Lord with all of your mind, soul, heart, and strength, your body. This means that God intends to connect and to be known by our souls with all the senses that he's made. Sight, sound, smell, touch, emotions, intellect. All of it. He made it, he wants to use it. So the church exists to help embodied souls live in love instead of fear. Jesus came to give us his view of the Father. Why did Jesus come? He came to take care of sin. Why is he taking care of sin? He's taking care of sin because it keeps us from understanding the Father, from connecting to the Father, from being one with the Father. So Jesus comes and and he's like, I want you to have the same view of the Father that I have so that you can get an abundant worldview. If you look just around you and you you don't see the Father, your whole world is going to be centered around lack, You're gonna believe that lack is around every corner that you turn. But if you see him, if you really see him, he will become a source to you from another world. And you will begin to have resources that this world that we live in can't explain. If God has more than enough for you, what do you need to fear? Even eternity has been taken care of. What is left to fear? So that you can live in love instead of fear. Now, if you do that, if you allow him to do that in you, this will lead to less control of other people and more love for other people in your life. Like, why am I so frustrated by this person? Why do I feel like if I could just get them to change their language or their attitude or not post that or please post that or or do this thing? Why do you need to control? Because you're afraid. And if you really understood how much you were loved, you would begin to release the people around you. (laughs) You'd begin to release the things around you. I had this whole uh, time in my life where I was, uh, this was a couple of years ago, I was just really angry all the time, frustrated. Well, a couple of years ago, I guess it was 2020. Maybe we all were. Uh, I was really angry and really frustrated and really like just wanting to control uh, people and it ended up. I ended up just taking it out on my wife. And Emily's like, you need to go talk to Andoni. Wise words. And I remember I came to Anonia I was like, I have no idea. It was actually before a church gathering. I was like, I'm supposed to go preach and I'm just mad all the time. And he's like, why do you feel the need to control everything? I didn't even make the connection. I'm angry because I'm in fear. I'm in fear because I need to, and I need to control everything. You don't know how much you're loved. If you knew how much you were loved, you wouldn't be in fear. You wouldn't need to control and you wouldn't be angry. The church exists to help embodied souls live in love instead of fear. Through oneness with Yahweh, you know, Jesus' entire point of coming was reconciliation with the Father, and his prayer in John 17, he, he makes his ultimate desire known, and what is it? It's oneness, that let them be one with you, Father, like I'm one with you. It almost feels blasphemous to read John 17. You're like, really? Let them be one with you like I am one with you? Incredible. To be returned to your creator in body, soul, mind, and strength is to be consumed by love itself. This is the goal. For the sake of heaven on earth. We are given, the church is given the Eden Rejuvenation Project, the renewal of all things. You know, we live in this inaugurated kingdom. Jesus said things like, the kingdom is at hand. You know, some people are going to say, the kingdom is over there, or you have to cross the sea to get it. No, 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 the kingdom is within you. But we also live in, so we live in this time where the kingdom has been inaugurated. The overlap of heaven and earth is accessible. But we also live in this world where great pain exists and great difficulty and sorrow exists. It's been inaugurated. It's not here in its fullness, but it is accessible. And that tension is the tension that we're seeking to live in as a church. God, heaven on earth, even when I'm looking around me and all I see is hell, God, give me the faith to trust that you have good intentions for this world. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 about the church. God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So you thought church was a little gathering that you went to on a Sunday. Think again. It's like your friend, you know, you go to work and your friend asks you like, oh, like what are you doing this weekend? And you're like, oh, I'm just participating in the cosmic renewal of all things as the manifold wisdom of God to the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's like, what are you doing this weekend? (laughs) Like, do you see the purpose that the church has? The point of church is to help embodied souls live in love instead of fear through oneness with Yahweh for the sake of heaven on earth so that God can look at the authorities and the powers in the heavenly realms, the demonic principalities, and he can say, you wanna know about my wisdom? Take a look at those people there. Take a look at that church there, my body there. I think John Wesley sums all of what we've been talking up quite well when he wrote this. What religion do I preach? The religion of love the law of kindness brought to light by the gospel. And what is it good for? Pay attention to this. To make all who receive it enjoy God and themselves. Why does church exist? We're trying to help you enjoy God and yourself. That's living in love. To make them like God, lovers of all, contented in their lives and crying out at their death in calm assurance. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be unto God who giveth me the victory Through my Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty awesome picture of the church, is it not? So the question is, how? I think we all can sit there and we go, "That's awesome." Why church? Yes, I'm on board. That's I, I love the church. How should we do church? What should our liturgy be? Look, every church has a liturgy. It's not just high church that has liturgy. Every church. Has a list of actions that they perform in worship. Or they do throughout the week that they believe is accomplishing what the church is supposed to accomplish. Every church. From the house church. To the Anglican church. To the Catholic church. To our church. Every church has a list of actions they perform in worship to God. That they do throughout the week. That they believe is accomplishing what the church is supposed to accomplish. They have a liturgy. And we have a liturgy. You know what our liturgy is? We worship by singing. We come in here and somebody opens up and we worship by singing. We have times of openness to the Holy Spirit where we pause and we listen. We have community events throughout the week, Bunko night, anybody? We have uh, teaching from the Bible. This is part of our liturgy. We have communion. That's part of our liturgy. And here's what I wanna say. Here's what I wanna say. I believe that a liturgy is only as successful as it is delivering people to the presence of God. Your liturgy is only as good as it's actually delivering the people of God to the presence of God. See, I have a conviction that um, corporate renewal, that's what we're about. Like, our church was founded on this idea that God intended to bring about revival to this valley. That was the conviction. That is the conviction. And I believe that corporate renewal, like we're after, begins with personal renewal, and personal renewal begins with father encounter. The most effective thing that a church can do, the most effective liturgy that a church can have is to promote oneness with Yahweh, to rule in love instead of fear. It's to set people up to encounter the very presence of God. That's the, that's the litmus test for a liturgy. This is our discipleship strategy. It's his presence. That's our discipleship strategy. Here's what uh, Tozer says in his book, Born, Born After Midnight. This is just awesome. He says this, By direct teaching, by story, by example, by psychological pressure, we force new converts to go to work for the Lord, ignoring the fact that God has redeemed them to, make them to make worshipers out of them. We thrust them out into service, quite as if the Lord were recruiting laborers for a project instead of seeking to restore moral human beings to a condition where they can glorify God and enjoy him forever. There is little danger that we shall become merely worshipers and neglect the practical implications of the gospel. No one can long worship God in spirit and truth before the obligation to holy service becomes too strong to resist. Fellowship with God leads straight to obedience and good works. That is the divine order, and it can never be reversed. We need a liturgy as a church that provides for embodied encounter. Which leads me to my main point this morning. In this next year, we will be adding to our liturgy. We'll be adding to our liturgy a sacramental rhythm. Do you remember what a sacrament is? I taught... um, I've I've had this whole kind of theological uh, awakening to the sacramental uh, life, and I um, taught—gosh, this is back in June, probably—on on on a, a sacramental worldview. We talked about what is a sacrament. Um, and, and I use this example, and actually, that's funny, we, got, we have the yearbooks. By the way, if you haven't gotten one of those, I think we'll have them after the gathering. We do a yearbook every year on our anniversary photos from the past year, and I write a little letter to the church. And, um, Anyways, it, it's cool. In the letter, I totally forgot that I'd written, I wrote it a couple weeks ago. I gave the same exa- example. So, spoiler. Um, think about driving through the woods. And as you're driving through the woods, you see a sign with a deer on it one of those yellow bright signs, and it has a deer on it. You would never see that sign and think, oh, look, there's a deer. You would think, there's a sign that tells me that there's a real deer in the woods around, around me. The woods that I'm driving through, That they have deer, and that sign is telling me that there's a deer there. And oftentimes, this is what, how we treat church as we come together and we take communion and we're like, this is a sign of what God did. We're remembering what he did. A sacrament is very, very different. A sacrament is more like a kiss. Think about a kiss between a husband and a wife. When a husband and a wife kiss, in some sense, they are pointing to the real love that they have. It is a sign. It's a sign of love. But it's more than that. A kiss in some ways, is participating in love. It's, in some ways, a kiss is increasing love between a husband and a wife. That's a sacrament. A sacrament is pointing to God. It's pointing to a spiritual reality, but it's doing more than that. In a sense, a sacrament is something physical that we do with our bodies that is participating in the divine life of God in a moment. So when you have this little cup of juice and this little wafer, you're not just, this this isn't just a symbol, this is a sacrament participating in the divine life of Christ, his body in your body, his blood in your body. It's powerful. And for our church, we have sacraments that we do. I actually would argue that worship by singing is a sacrament. Why? Not just because it feels good. It says in the scriptures that God inhabits the praise of his people. So what does that mean? That means that there's an overlap taking place when we worship, when we sing. It's not just songs, it's a sacrament. It's a moment for heaven and earth to overlap. Teaching the scriptures. What are the scriptures? They're (laughs) God-breathed. It's sacramental to sit and to open up the scriptures and to connect with God. Many of you have experienced that. Communion, and our communion Sunday meals that we have, sacramental. Baptism, sacramental. And here's what our leadership's heart is on the matter. If I can represent our staff and our elder team and our deacons, we would like to add to what we see as sacramental as a church. God is both found in the ritual and he's found in the spontaneous. Churches typically tend to be good at one or the other. They tend to be good at the ritual or they tend to be good at the spontaneous, almost at the cost of the other, right? We want both in our church. That's why we're doing the Apostles' Creed at the end of our gathering. It's a rooting point. That's why we do declarations for uh, opening the gathering sometimes or or, uh, during offering. It's a rooting point. We also want the spontaneous where somebody can just share, hey, I feel like God's doing that. this thing. Is that anybody in this room? Raise your hand. Let's pray for you right now. Hey, we have pre-gathering prayer where we get together and we listen and we ask God, are you saying anything unique to this gathering that you want to move on today? So, we are sensing as a church that we are pretty, we lean into the spontaneous and we want to grow in the ritual. And what I think we need is I think we need a sacramental calendar, a yearly rhythm that addresses all the life experiences of an embodied soul. So, what does this mean for Saints Hill, for our church? What it means is that we're gonna be trying some new things, we're gonna be trying activities outside of just sermon and songs to help embodied people meet with the Father in new ways. That's the goal. We must begin to see what we do with our bodies in faith is sacramental. It's a place for experiencing the divine life and hosting the presence of God. So here's some practical changes that we're going to bring about. We're gonna start following the church calendar. Now, if you're Catholic or if you're Anglican, you're gonna think, these guys are wimps. (laughs) Um, We are. We are wimps. Um, We're gonna begin by just doing Advent, every year, Lent every year, and Pentecost every year, and we're going to ease our way into being led by the common book of prayer and by the sacramental calendar that the church has been following for thousands of years. Uh, Another thing that we're changing is we're changing the way that we do communion. You know, this, I hate this. I love it, Lord, but I hate the the medium, (laughs) the way that it's brought to me, um, I have a whole uh, series that we're going to be starting on October 30th on communion, and we're going to bring communion to the center of our gatherings. It's going to take more time. We're going to use real bread, real wine. There will be juice options coming um, as well. Uh, but we really want to take seriously the Lord's Supper, and we really want to take seriously the Eucharist. If you remember, if you're old Saint Hiller, we did not start out with this. Uh, This was an accommodation with COVID and moving to a new building and trying to get our feet under us a little bit. Um, This has not been our intention, so thank you for bearing with us. We want to honor the meal that Christ gave us. We want to honor the meal of his body and his blood. So um, we're going to be making some significant changes in the way that we do communion. It will last longer. Other things in our gathering will probably get a little bit shorter to make room for that. Um, And then lastly, we're going to be starting practice groups. Um, Some of you guys know we were planted by a church uh, called Bridgetown Church in Portland, and uh, John Mark Comer, who was the pastor there, he started a ministry called Practicing the Way, where he basically walks people through uh, specific spiritual disciplines, embodied practices for encountering God. It's a wonderful video series. And so we're going to have small groups starting up in April, I believe, I think, Uh, springtime, small groups centered around learning about spiritual disciplines for four-week periods. And so if you've at all been like, how do I connect with people? How do I get to know people? Here's a really wonderful opportunity. It's not a huge commitment. It's four weeks long, and it's a way for you to, as an embodied soul, encounter God. And we're very excited about that as well. Uh, We're not changing our values. We are simply applying our values to our whole body and our whole lives as a church, So what is our social contract then? If this is why church, how church, what is the social contract required for this to take place? What can you expect to give to church and what can you expect to get from church? Two things, a rule of life from our values and personality expansion. A rule of life from our values. You know, when thinking about a social contract, one should ask, you know, when somebody comes into this church, you're talking about the social contract, well, when somebody comes into this church, How does their lifestyle change? How does their thinking change? How does their belief change? And how does the way that they live their lives change? Well, our core values actually give a rule of life, if you will, a lifestyle description. Here's our core values. Um, We have 10 core values typically through our um, vision series, we teach through all 10. We haven't done that this year, but we've done it twice, so you can go on the podcast. I would really, really recommend that you listen to them, especially if you're new or you're trying to discern if this is the church for you. Uh, Each of these values presents an opportunity for your lifestyle to change, from the idea that God is good to Jesus is Lord to we have a privilege of hosting the Father's presence and nothing is impossible, to we are the righteousness of God, to that we have the privilege of leaving a legacy to the next generation. These values place a demand on your lifestyle and I am constantly, as a pastor here, checked by these values. Constantly. Each value, the way that I like to think of it, has a door attached with it. And it is a door to a lifestyle of encounter. I want to just say this, our social contract is that I want our values to become your values. So if you're here and you're looking at these and you're like, those aren't my values and I don't want those to be my values, this is not a good church for you. If you're here and you're looking at those values and you say, I want those to be my values. I even, those are some of my values. This will be a very comfortable place for you to become more like Jesus, an embodied lover able to rule alongside Christ for the renewal of all things. We want you to see church as family. That's what we're trying to get you to see. We want you to make your primary aim in life to host God's presence. We want you to live with the conviction that heaven is accessible here and now. We have an agenda. (laughs) And we're not beating around the bush. Our agenda is that those values become for you a rule of life. And so secondly, our social contract will include personality expansion. Personality expansion. Let me just list out the personalities that I see here in this church. You have the moms, the dads, the mystics, the flag wavers, the dancers, the sitters, the contemplators, the harmony singers, the advocates, and the teachers, all within the same church. When I describe the kind of diversity of people that we have in our church to other pastors, they're like, I don't know how you're doing that. I don't know. I've never seen the contemplative and the the flag wavers in the same building in the same space. I've never seen that before. And all of you are in this church, and I want to say this, it fills my heart. It fills my heart. Because to be honest, I I see myself in all of that. I'm ready to lift up a shout of praise to the Lord. I'm ready to dance and get goofy. I want to see nutty gatherings. I'm also very contemplative, and I love silence and solitude and and just sitting and and really contemplating the scripture and contemplating what God is doing. The question that you all, if I I listed you, the question that you all must answer with with all liturgy that we have in this church is this. If we have the same goal for our church liturgy, we all want to see God himself. His presence is the goal. If If that's our goal, And here's a question for you. Can I learn from the personalities around me and how I experience God? See, the conversation that I frequently have goes something like this. Yeah, we visited Saints Hill, kind of interesting church, like the sermon. But we're checking out another church because uh, they do this thing in their gathering that I really like they sing for a long time, it's a lot longer than you guys, Uh, or they wait in silence, or they don't have people who are dancing and being so distracting, or they do have people who are dancing and waving banners, or they sing these songs, or they do communion this way. And what I've concluded from all these conversations is that generally people don't pick churches over theology, they they pick churches over their personality. And so I want to say this, pick your church, But if you make a decision about which church family will become your family based on your personality preferences, you will not only view that church for what it can provide you and not what you can give it, but you will stunt your growth as a disciple because you will never learn to encounter God beyond your preferences. So the sacramental calendar is going to be a challenge for all of us. There are seasons of contemplation and penance. And for those of us, like myself, the charismatics in the room who are all joy, don't even talk about difficulty in life, that will be challenging for you. There is also Pentecost in the church calendar. Do you know what happened at Pentecost? Do you know how many emails I would get if fire came down on people's heads in our gathering? So if you're gonna follow the church calendar, you should follow the whole thing. No matter your personality in this room, no matter where you're coming from, it will mean expansion of your personality and your preferences. It will mean that you begin to encounter God in ways that you've never encountered him before, that you stretch yourself a little bit. Some of you will need to try yelling and cheering and lifting up a shout of praise and dancing even when you don't feel like it. And some of you, for other personalities, you're gonna try to spend some time in silence and solitude and you should probably fast. You're an embodied soul. Here's the whole point. If all our personalities find their source in God, if He has all of our personalities find their source in God, then we can learn new ways of encountering our good Father through the personalities of other people around us. And that's where unity comes from. Unity doesn't mean that you have to lay down your convictions or you have to lay down the things that you prefer, you prefer what you prefer. It just means that you're going to allow expansion to take place because you love God that much. To end, I want to give a quote from C.S. Lewis because what would my sermon be without one? And I think he's describing what God is doing in many of us at this church. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I think that's what's in store for us this next year, if you'll allow it. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you wanna stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the app store or visit our website.